0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Cathy Rensenbrink, who is the author of The Last Act of Love and A Manual for Heartache, and most recently, Dear Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books, which is published by Picador and came out in September 2020. Cathy speaks and writes regularly on life, death, love, literature, literacy and mental health, and is often to be found doing bookish events at festivals and shops and libraries and in prisons. Uh, obviously pre-COVID days, of course. In previous lives, Kathy worked for the bookseller, the reading agency, Quick Reads, Waterstones and The Bell and Crown and. And despite her books being shortlisted for various prizes, the only thing Kathy has ever won is the Snaith and District Ladies' Darts Championship when she was 17. She's now, sadly, out of practice. Uh, but that's still impressive. And, and when I was reading up on it, you were the youngest ever winner, Kathy, and you hit 180 in the final, which impressed me very much.
1: Thank you. I got an extra trophy for that.
0: Well, listen, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. I mentioned, obviously, the, the latest book that's come out, Dear Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books which I've been lucky enough to read. And i tell you how much I enjoyed this book, actually. I almost was tempted to make wee notes in the margins of books, which I never, ever do in books. That's how, you know, we just read gems throughout it.
1: That's lovely. I feel, I would feel honoured by that. I love it when somebody's got one of my books and I see that they've scribbled in it. That makes me happy. So thank you.
0: Well, do you know, I had, I had a conversation in one of the other podcasts with another writer and, and I said I never take notes, even from when I was a student, I never liked taking notes in the book. But she was the complete opposite and she loved getting a book where somebody else has made the notes and then she can start yeah. to imagine who they were, what the notes were for. and
1: Yeah, that's me. That's my way on. And I always think as well that, um, you know, if you are a purist about books, you would feel a bit aghast by my bookshelves because the books do get, they get dropped in the bath, they get scribbled on. Yeah. <laughs>
0: But I suppose the I suppose there's that argument then that almost the books are lived in that are
1: yeah they're, I think so I you know for all I'm so crazy about books I've never been that into I mean I like book design because it's imaginative and beautiful but I'm not. That fast for the book as an object. I've never been really interested in collecting. You know, I wouldn't be interested in collecting first editions. Say, I mean, I wouldn't mind if somebody gave me something beautiful, but that. But then I would have to have a scruffier edition of it that I could drop <laughs> in the back and turn the corners of the pages over. Some people get really cross with, about that.
0: Right at the very the start of the book, and you you talk about almost like organising your books in terms of when you read them, and then it was kind of that journey through reading reading books that were really important to you. Because I'm always interested with people how they organise their books. Is it in that order? Is it just alphabetical? I see quite a few people on social media posting images of their bookcases, colour coordinated. I'm just not convinced with that one at all.
1: No, again, I wouldn't. I'm not a very visual person, so that that wouldn't do it for me. But I know people that do it, and fair play to them, but... um... No, but i've never I never come up with an ideal way of doing it. I'm always messing about with different systems. at the moment, I've got fiction in a different place from memoir, and I'm thinking about making little crime sections. So I'm sort of always messing about with them. But I still I mean the amount of times I'm looking for a book and I know I own it, but I just can't find it. So that's upsetting.
0: <laughs> yeah I, I, About a, a couple of years ago I, I reorganized my bookshelves in alphabetical order for that very reason because. Either I couldn't find the book or invariably I'd organise them and suddenly discover I had two or three copies because I kept losing them and having to buy another one. So it has helped me a wee bit. In terms of, you know, the motivation for writing the book, which is kind of obviously a celebration of books about how important they are for you, but also in terms of your own story, how they've obviously been a real help for you at various points in your life. And what, what was it made you decide to basically impart that love of books onto the page in a new book?
1: Well, I mean, I'm always, I am always reading and I'm always thinking about reading and sort of, wondering about reading and wondering what it is about reading and then it was that I felt I was just I just felt really tired and a bit you know lonely a bit exhausted Um, I'd been watching too much news I'd been you know having too much social media neither of which things make me feel good and I just decided to kind of like put myself on a technology diet and instead reread some books and I must say I did immediately feel better actually even deciding to do it made me feel a bit better and then doing it made me feel loads better so it was just a thing of I just decided to read through read through the books that I'd most loved, kind of in order of when I first read them. So I just kind of, you know, I'd turn my phone off. Well, I'd turn my, you know, I'd have a working day and then I would turn my phone off and I'd turn my computer off. And then I just for the rest of the evening wasn't allowed to do anything other than read. And it it did make me feel so much better. And it you know, and it still does. And I know it's the way to sort of sort myself out a bit is if I'm getting a bit over frazzled a bit overwhelmed by life, then I just need to turn everything off and, you know, reread a favourite book in the bath. And then that, that just helps to reset me a bit.
0: Because one of the intriguing things about the book, and I love books about books. I'm a, you know, as soon as I go into a bookshop, if I see, you know, either a book about books or a writer's involved in it, I'm already one over But. Quite often, again, we've had this discussion in the podcast a lot of times about people who reread books, and I'm always thinking there's always a new book that I should if I'm rereading a book, mm. is another book I'm missing out. But when I was reading your book, I suddenly started taking a list of all these books that I've have reread and reread again, and the reasons why. And I thought I didn't I hadn't realised over the years how many books from childhood right through that I've, I actually have revisited at various times. And you kind of touch on it at various points. There's sometimes there's a real comfort in kind of revisiting an old friend as well.
1: I think there is, and also. I think we you find out new things as well so I think there are books I often find a book has changed because I've changed you know so because I'm bringing a different self an older self to the pages I will find different things and I find that really fascinating some I mean I know some people who read a lot and they don't reread ever I mean I just don't get that because I I mean I sometimes think all my reading reading new books I'm just auditioning books to see if I'm going to reread them (laughs) (laughs) it's the rereading that's the real the real sort of meat and drink of it for me So I I tend, when I'm reading something for the first time, I, you know, race through it at high speed. because I don't like being, you know, I find it as soon as I've got a story going, I kind of almost want to finish it because I find it a bit uncomfortable being in an open story. And then, I mean, sometimes I'll I'll read something. I remember reading The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell and I read it and then just immediately started reading it again. Um, So sometimes I'll finish something and straight away start rereading it or I'll think like, oh, yeah, I'm going to want to reread that. So I think that's the, yeah, so the rereading is so crucial for me. Um, I mean, then it does get to the point where I will know books so well that I will almost wish I could forget them a bit. You know, I'll think, I'll start rereading something and I'll think, actually, I remember this too well. I'm going to have to leave this a bit longer before I read it again.
0: It's funny, I had that kind of effect with your book because I, I read it and, as I say, I'm a real sucker for books about books, but then having read it and almost been tempted to take notes, I, I'd take notes in a notebook. But then I went back and was, even over the past week or so, again, just dipping back in and out of it, which which is just a really nice feeling to have.
1: Yeah, it's comfortable, isn't it? I think once you... I mean, I do not all books, of course, but I do think there are books where you do have a sort of a friendly reaction to them, don't you? You have a kind of a that they are that they are. I mean, some books are called companions, aren't they? The, the companion to this, that, and the other. And I think that's the thing. Books become companions, and you feel like you're, you know, fellow travellers or you're alongside each other.
0: I mean, obviously, for the for the purposes of this podcast, I've tried to put you on the spot and choose your, your favourite book in various categories. I always, it's almost like a kind of, a slight apologies stroke disclaimer that you'll not be held to account if, if at some point you choose something else somewhere down the line. Because <laughs> it, it's an impossibility to, to choose one book in any category. You kind of touched on it already. At different times, different books will mean so much to you.
1: Yeah, it's true, isn't it? So I did something, the, you know, last week somebody asked me for my Desert Island book. And the thing is, I I could give a different answer on I don't know, I could probably answer that question every day for a month and I'd still be coming up with different things because it would depend on the mood I was in at the time. I don't have... And again, all your questions, which I very much enjoyed answering, I could have answered them all differently yeah. on a different day, but they, those felt like the answers I wanted to give on the day that I was doing
0: it. Well, the first, first question is always a favourite book from childhood and the book you've chosen is Anna Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery, which... Again, with people who are reading Dear Reader, there's a thread through that of like, mm. just how much that book is meant to you. You know, what was it that obviously elevates that book? It still sticks with you from childhood.
1: Well, I think it's a little bit to do with the fact that my dad always felt a bit like a fictional character to me because he, he was an orphan. And when I was little, I just used to love getting him to talk about, you know, his mum had died when he was eight and then his dad, not that long after. And he ended up running away to sea. And it just seemed so sort of, I mean, really like he was like a character out of a storybook. And I did completely adore him. But I think it was my, I think my love for him sort of grafted on to my love of Anne of Green Gables, another orphan, another unwanted child who uh, she ends up, it all ends up happily, of course. But the very opening of the book, Matthew Cuthbert is going to get her, he's going to pick up the orphan, but he thinks he's collecting a boy. And there's been a misunderstanding. and That the person that's gone to collect her from the asylum, gone to collect this boy from the asylum, has got a girl instead. And the whole thing in the beginning is like that nobody wants her because she's a girl. Then, of course, she slightly charms them and they decide to keep her, even though she's a girl. And of course, they end up being very glad that they did. But I just think that notion of, oh, an unloved, being an unloved child finding your you know finding your way in the world and I still completely adore the books now when you go back when I go back to them now at my age I really notice because I was all about Anne the first time but when I go back to them I really notice Marilla who's the middle-aged woman who takes her in and how a lot of the joy of the book for me now is the way that Marilla sort of softens you know she's taught by Anne as indeed I think there is the potential to be taught by our children, or just by children, that it's a very special relationship. And then I like the way Anne grows up, and there's a, there's a raft of books, and I find it very interesting, sort of cross-referencing that I'm, I'm just endlessly fascinated with the journey from life to page that writers do. And I, I also like reading L.M. Montgomery's diaries, which are much bleaker than the Anne books. You know, she had a difficult life in several ways, but often something happens, and then it, it crops up in the next Anne book. So, for example, she had a so she had a son, but then her next pregnancy ended in a stillbirth, and she was writing. And actually, she was writing Anne of the Island at the time, but her next book was Anne's House of Dreams, and that experience happens to Anne as well. So I think it's very interesting looking at what she says about it in her diary and what then ends up in the novel. So I just I just love all that all that sort of thing, and there's sort of gentle. I think I'd say they're social comedies, really, and that she never wrote them for a child's audience. Over time, it became clear that children liked them, but initially, she just wrote it as a, you know, as a book.
0: I always remember one of my sisters reading them when she was younger, Mm -hmm. to the point where uh, my two sisters and my parents went on holiday to Canada one year, and part of it was to go to Prince Edward Island. Oh
1: yeah, I'd love. Almost
0: like a pilgrimage. Yeah. But they were phenomenally, and they have been phenomenally successful over basically the entire 20th century. And there must there's just something in that engages adults and children. I think.
1: Yeah, exactly. And again, another thing I find really interesting is reading, you know, reading authors. Oh, it's so fascinating, isn't it? It's that whole thing about what becomes successful and what doesn't become successful. And it's interesting reading her diaries because she just has no idea that the Am books will turn out the way they do. And there's quite a lot of she sort of grumbles. She'll say in her diaries, you know, like oh oh, they want me to write another Anne book and I've just had enough because children are interesting but, you know, young women aren't interesting and love affairs aren't interesting and I don't want to write it but, you know, I'd rather write something else but it's all that they want, you know, so all this sort of like grumbling (laughs) and complaining. Of course, although they were phenomenally successful, she didn't, I mean she did benefit from it in her lifetime but she had quite a crooked publisher so that you know they ended up in a legal dispute that she found very very stressful so she didn't um she didn't have anything like the wealth that they ultimately made but again she liked i mean she did like she liked earning money and then her husband was a, a bit of a mixed bag and he quite often didn't like her being praised you know didn't like other people giving her attention so it's sort of endlessly fascinating and it's just so interesting because of course the anne in the books has the delightful dreamboat gilbert blind but her real life romance wasn't you know her real life marriage wasn't that great and she says at one point in the diaries she says I never you know I was never in love with him but I feel quite satisfied that I married him and we've had our children and we've made our life together right. and then you know later on in the diaries she's no longer as even as positive as that. About me.
0: <laughs> you mentioned right at the start and when, uh, when I was just asking you why you chose that book you're talking about your dad and his his life and then the Reader He's a brilliant character. I think everybody will read that and really, they really engage with him. I think is mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just a byproduct of you having written the book that you know, especially when you talk about his journey in terms of discovering books himself and reading. But he's such a brilliant character in the book.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I do completely adore him, and it's that whole thing. Of, I mean, he does. He did always feel like a fictional character to me, and does. I mean, still does to a certain extent. One of the things, because I I wrote a lot about my parents in my first book, The Last Act of Love, and I really like it, you know, because when people that have read that book meet them, which sometimes happens now, and people always say to me, like, oh, they're just like they are in the book. And I'm like, yes, they are. (laughs) And I just do, yeah, I really like writing about him. And it's difficult, you know, because I teach memoir writing now, and I'm always saying to people, it's difficult to write about someone you adore. You can't, as in you can't say... You know, you can't say, my son is a remarkable young man. You know, you can't, you can't kind of like layer on the praise or indeed the, on the, you know, if you really hate someone as well, that's difficult. You can't just say, you can't just list, give a whole list of grievances why you don't like someone. But yeah, I love writing about my dad. And I just I just find his story so interesting. And of course, he didn't, you know, because of the breakdown in his family, he didn't learn to read and write. And then he learned to read and write as an adult. And I think I just find that so fascinating, because that it feels like such a privilege and a gift to me, because I don't remember learning to read It's you know, it's the biggest thing about me, really, that I'm a reader. In fact, I learned a new word recently, which is hyperlexic, which I think is probably what I am. And I was, it's a word for children that Read and write very, very young. So I think I'm probably that. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff I can't do, like driving and knowing my left from my right and I walk into stuff, you know, so it kind of, I think it has its probably its flip side. But I've always felt it's a gift that, it's an odd sort of gift to me, in a way, to have that contrast between me and my dad. And of course, he's a great storyteller. The fact that he couldn't read and write, and still couldn't, um, he wouldn't be able to write a story down. You know, he's, as he says, punctuation's a foreign country, and uh, he can do shopping lists and stuff, but he can't. Doesn't really distinguish between capital letters and lowercase letters. If I get a card from him, you know, and he's written "dad," it's like it's anybody's guess which one will be a capital. <laughs> and it's jumbled up. But again, that just makes my heart lift but he's an amazing storyteller again such a sense of narrative tension so much humor so it's just very he's just very interesting and i yeah i adore him i just feel so as well i mean like what what a gift in this world i think to both both men and women i think to have a good dad is it's just such a brilliant a brilliant thing so i sort of feel endlessly grateful for him
0: Because one of the things very early on in the book, which endlessly fascinates me, is that idea, you know, you you said you don't remember a time when you couldn't read it, it was almost like prayer dend, or it was the kind of fairy dust sprinkled on you, and what fascinates me, and I've told this story loads of times in the podcast, I've, I've got three kids, and my oldest daughter reads sometimes my middle daughter's the one who just as soon as she could read, she's never stopped reading she's the voracious reader. and my son who's now 26 does not read at all mm-hmm. to the point where about 10 years ago i think it was i'd written my first novel so i'd given them all a copy with a personalized message and after 2 weeks he came back to me and he said dad i'm not going to read your book I went, okay he said books aren't for me i'll just wait until the film comes out <laughs> And he just, it's, just not, it's just not how he engages uh, yeah. with information. And, and I've done a few wee things with him where we talk about, he picks a book out of the bookshelf of a book he's not reading. We chat a wee bit about the book and then go to chat about other things. I'm okay, I'm fine with that because I just think there's an element of some of us embrace books more than others and, you know, we're all different in that respect.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And when, you know, when I was working for a literacy charity, what I, what I always felt was I want everyone to have the opportunity As long as people have got the opportunity, then after that, they can do what they like with it. I don't necessarily think reading is a more moral act than playing football, say. It's not like I want everyone to stop playing football on Sundays so they can read books instead. But it's more that if you haven't had the opportunity, then that's what I always felt. I wanted to make sure people knew that reading could be for them, which people often don't feel. You know, when I was running the charity, I used to come across that all the time. People would say... I remember one of the lovely pieces of feedback being, you know, like oh, the first time I went to the reading group at the library, I felt really nervous, but now I read books like I was born to it, and I think I've always been interested in that idea of what we think our birthright is. So I I would like everyone to feel their birthright is reading if they want to pick that up. But again, if it's not for them, then I don't care. You know, I don't I don't feel the need to evangelize if somebody if it's available to somebody and they choose not to, they choose to do something else instead.
0: Well, I always pinned my hopes then that one day my son and other impress so some of it phase attractive. will pick up a book because that's the way to to the heart.
1: <laughs> yeah, it might be.
0: If I take you on in terms of this literary journey of your life, and it's to your favourite book from more kind of teenage student formative years, and the book that you've chosen is a history of the world in ten and a half chapters by Julian Barnes. And what was it about that book that? stayed with you again
1: just I mean I discovered Julian Barnes I think when I was 16 17 and it just oh blew my mind and again I could have picked any of his novels really that were out then because I started reading them all at the same time and he's very interested in France so it was all the same time you know I was reading Bonjour Tristesse was the first novel I finished in French I was at sixth form college I just sort of like fell for literature in France all in the same kind of like all in the same well in the same fall I guess it all seemed connected to me and it just seemed so sort of, I mean, glamorous is the wrong word because that feels a bit brassy as a word, but it just seemed so enviable. You know, it just made me want to travel and be literary and go to France and make friends, you know, make friends with French people and have French lovers and smoke gitan and drink coffee in cafes and stuff. And, but a history of the world in 10 and a half chapters, which is a history of the world in 10 and a half chapters. The half chapter is on love. Just kind of blew my mind, and I still, I still love it. There's so it's so clever the way that it all. It, there's various themes that go through, like the ark is a really big theme. So it starts with a chapter narrated by a stowaway on Noah's ark, but then as you go through the book, there's various shipwrecks, various people on boats, um, all sorts of things happening with water and floating. But, you know, there's all sorts of stuff about love as well. And, yeah, I just loved it then, still did. And I think one of the things Julian Barnes does is he just writes with such intimacy. So I think, you, you know, I felt... So I'm 17, I'm shuttling between my home, which is a pub in Snaith, and my sixth form college at Scunthorpe, and I'm reading Julian Barnes on the bus. But, you know, I feel like he's talking to me. And I feel like... Not only do I feel like he's talking to me, I feel like he's telling me I can belong to this world too. So there was something incredibly open, I think, About there is something very open about the way that he writes. It's inviting. That's a quality I try to do in my writing. I try to invite the reader in. You know, I'm not saying you're not allowed in here. I'm, I'm trying to say, come in, you know, come into this book. But that's what I've always taken from, that's what I've taken from him, I think. I can't remember which novel is it, it, it's in. It might be in Metroland, but there's a line somewhere where he says, in marriage, all jokes are good jokes. And I think, again, probably when I was 17, I sort of like just hopped over that, almost like didn't notice it. Whereas now, I think about it all the time. I think it's the truest thing. It's the truest, shortest thing you could say about marriage. It just sums up for me, all jokes are good jokes. You know, if your partner goes to the effort of pulling a joke out of the air when you're buried in all the stress of the, the kids and the this and the that, then, you know, you bloody laugh. you know? <laughs> it's <kind> of... <laughs> So it's that. He's just, it's just full of beautiful little things. And, yeah, so loved him then, love him still.
0: Because was that, you know, obviously that question in terms of those years and that book? Because obviously in terms of, particularly if people read this book, but also if they read your first book, The Last Act of Love, which is about the life and the death of your brother, which happened round about that in those mm-hmm. years as well. And again, you mentioned in Dear Reader about how books were a real, real source of comfort and help and saved you in many respects during that period of what happened that for most of us, you know, thankfully touched with you, we've never had to kind of contemplate or deal with.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a... Tr- and, you know, for all the fact that I've written about it so much and talked about it so much, I still just get, like, overwhelmed by the fact of it, really. Yeah, so my brother, who I adored, was just knocked over by a car one night and then never got better. And he, you know, he didn't die straight away. He was alive for eight years in what's called a persistent vegetative state. And it was just tr- just so truly awful, But quite often what I would, I just couldn't, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it happened. It was so terrible. But quite often the thing that would keep me, you know, would keep me afloat was was reading and I just you know I just had to read and I do think that the most basic level because I think people can sometimes people turn their nose up at the notion that reading is escapist but you know it really was for me it really was like it would just give me a bit of time off from myself and the world and I was talking to a friend recently who's been you know very suddenly and horribly bereaved and she said oh I can't read Uh, I said you know I said don't worry about it loads of people can't read you know you know it's kind of a symptom of grief that people can't read but I've always been I've always been able to. It's not that I, I don't want to read new things. I don't want to read hard things. I don't want to read difficult things. But I can always, I can always reread. I can always find something to read. And it's just really essential. It's just how I kind of like switch off from the reality of what's happened, I think. And I think I'm very fond of Julian Barnes for that reason as well. Because I know, you know, one of the things I struggled with in later life was I just couldn't, almost couldn't. In fact, that was one of the motivations as well, I think, for writing Dear Reader I couldn't remember who I was. I couldn't get a sense of myself before my brother was knocked over. That seemed like such a big, huge, transformative thing. And that's, it's kind of like a sad thing to think that you don't know, you know, that you don't exist before a certain age. And the main way that I found myself was by thinking of the books that I liked. So I think when I now read the history of the world in 10 and a half chapters, I know I loved that before my brother's accident. I know I love Flaubert's power. You know, Barnes is quite obsessed with death. And so it's interesting for me to find out I liked that before I had a reason to be obsessed with death, if that makes sense. You know, so I think that's what I did. I found myself in those books. So I do read anything that I know that I loved before my brother's accident. I have a special interest in it in a way because it's the it's the undamaged me that liked it. So it sort of shows me what I was like.
0: I remember at the time reading The Last Act of Love and we you know, loving the book and obviously admiring the honesty and have this thing of some of it's for me is like a kind of faith based thing where I just kinda of count my blessings every day and just kinda of thank for me God and for every day it's in my life because I know and again, you make that point at some point in the book, towards the end of the book, that bad things do happen in life to people and to all of us at various points. And so you just kind of always trying to remind myself to appreciate the days that are good and the people that are there. And I always admire the honesty, And which I always think must be really difficult to tell your own story and share it effectively.
1: I mean, I think honesty is hard, but I also think in some ways, for me, I just wouldn't bother with doing any of this if I wasn't going to be honest with it. So that kind of, in a way keeps me on the straight and narrow with it you know i feel like i didn't crawl over glass to survive what i've survived so that i could be an inauthentic person in the world does that make sense it it, it, it was so funny actually my son the other day i can't remember i said something about authenticity and he said "Mummy," he said you're always talking about authenticity he said and i tell you what no one cares including (laughs) me (laughs) which is i mean there's nothing like an 11 year old to pop pinning yourself (laughs) but yeah but I think that you know that thing you said that is the trick of it that's the trick of life because it is really difficult to be grateful for the absence of a tragedy so many people when something happens they say if only I'd known how happy I was you know something terrible happens and immediately people are filled with this intense nostalgia for the few days beforehand but in those few days beforehand usually they weren't feeling particularly happy they weren't thinking aren't i lucky that i can cook this meal for my family they were more thinking, you know and I, i you know i do it myself i try not to i drift into you know moaning about stuff but i do try to you know arguably it's one of the it's one of the more useful things is to just to have an awareness that things can change in the flick of an eye you know in a complete instant things might change so to try and appreciate the the here and now and just be grateful you know grateful for small pleasures grateful for the sort of tiny movements of life
0: well you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy and my guest, Cathy Rensenbrink. Cathy, we're on to your third book choice in the podcast, and that is a book you would recommend to anyone, again, from reading your own book, I'm guessing that might have been quite a difficult choice to make, but I, interestingly, you've chosen quite a, a recent book, The Confessions of Franny Langton by Sarah Collins.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just, again, I could have picked a lot of books because I do like recommending books to people, but um, I do, I love this novel so much. I write about it in the book because I wasn't, you know, when I again, when I started writing books about books, I did decide that I wasn't going to write about recent books because, again, that would just be too consuming because I was still reading loads of new novels as 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 I was really reading my old ones. I thought, oh, it'll confuse me. It'll confuse other people. I won't. I'll just cut it off. You know, I won't read it. I won't write about anything recent. And then a couple of things I just kind of slightly couldn't resist or they crept in. And this was one of them because I used to have a thing where if I was reading a book that was really good, I just couldn't go to sleep. So I'd sort of stay up all night reading it and I did that with A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. And then I felt really, really mad the next day. And then the day after that, so I just thought I've got to stop this. I've got to stop this staying up, up all night, Lark. And I went through a stage of not reading new fiction before bed because it was like too tempting. So I'd only reread before bed. When I started reading this, and again, it's, uh, I've, it's, got the, it's got a picture of gold embroidery scissors on the front that turn out to be relevant to the plot. And, I, you know, I ran my hands over the cover and felt this tingle that I sometimes feel when I feel a book is going to be particularly good. And it's just so completely brilliant. And its, um, it's author, Sarah Collins, has become a friend, um, which is a great honour to me. But she says about how she just decided that, you know, because she grew up reading Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice, on her small Caribbean island and then just decided why couldn't a Jamaican former slave be the star of her own gothic romance and that's what we've got here and I just love it so much and like right from the very very beginning of it I just was completely in love so I'll just read you the first couple of lines and then tell me would you not just want to read this book all night my trial starts the way my life did a squall of elbows and shoveling and spit from the prisoners hold they take me through the gallery down the stairs and past the table crawling with barristers and clerks Around me, a river of faces in flood. Their mutters rising, blending with the lawyer's whispers. A noise that hums with all the spite of bees in a bush. Heads turn as I enter, every eye a skewer. I'm like, yeah, so I did stay up reading it till about three o'clock in the morning. And I just, I just love it. It's a belter of a story. And, you know, our heroine Franny ends up on trial because people say that she's murdered her mistress, but she could never have murdered her mistress because she loved her. Um, so it's a love story. It's a historical novel, and yeah, I just completely and utterly loved it.
0: Because sometimes so, you know how that you either when you read or when you hear like a paragraph like that or a sentence, and then as a writer, obviously there's part of you that is absolutely blown away. There's also there's also a wee part of me I always think that's some benchmark to try and reach.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I don't. I tend to just be inspired. I think by good writing. I mean, I didn't used to be. So you know, so for years, if you think, I mean, I always wanted to write a book and didn't. Finished one until I was 42. And I do think quite often I'd give up. I mean, I gave up for loads of different reasons. I did used to give up because I would just be overwhelmed by other people's brilliance. So I did used to think, like, I can't be as good as Julian Barnes. I can't be as good as Hilary Mantel. Why bother? And actually, then I did realize, you know, I don't have to sound like them. I have to sound like myself. The only thing that matters is trying to sound like myself. And when I teach writing now, that's what I'm always saying to people. Don't try and sound rightly. Don't try and sound like someone else. You're just trying to sound like yourself. You're just trying to really communicate as you. And again, trust that trust that you're good enough, You know that your experiences are good enough, because that's what I find exciting in, in writing. It's the uniqueness of someone's experience, the cross-section of who they are with what they see and then what they can put on the page. That's what I'm in it for. I'm not interested in... I mean, I love reading Hilary Mantel, but the world wouldn't be a good place if we could all write like her. <laughs> but if we could, it wouldn't be good.
0: <laughs> yeah, because I noticed on your uh, your Twitter bio that mm-hmm. you've got a, a novel that's, that's set to come out uh, next year, which obviously is a departure for you in terms of what you've written before. But that must be quite exciting.
1: It is exciting, actually. I do feel it. Ex- I tell you, I feel excited at the moment because it's at a really good stage, which is that I've written a lot of it, so I know it's going to exist. So for me, there's always this. I'm so, I, I get excited about ideas and then write a bit and then I spend an awfully long time trying to convince myself that it's a terrible idea and I should just put it in the bin and that bit's hard but then there comes a point where I know a book's going to exist I've got critical mass you know there's enough of it that I know it's going to exist and actually from that bit onwards I always feel really good and then I really like the collaborative stage so my novels with my editor now for some notes and I've got another edit, edit to do but I feel good about that. I will really enjoy the, I love scene covers, the whole thing that, you know, I, I just find it so exciting that other people are involved in my work, that they'll send me some covers to look at. And That's just really exciting. And then I actually really like, not all authors do, I really like the PR bit where you talk about the writing to the point, to be honest, where I like that best. I think I write books so I can then talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> I do like writing, but what I love even more is I like talking about writing endlessly fascinated in writing process so I think that's kind of a lot of writers resent the time away from the desk but I find writing very lonely so I kind of slightly have to chain myself at the desk so I can get a manuscript together but then everything that happens next feels completely joyous to me. When it gets closer though having said how brilliant it is I'm also in a nice stage of it of because I know like nobody else is with, it. it's with my editor and my agent both of whom I trust both of whom like it Um, And it's not yet at the stage where it's going out into the world. When it's at that stage, I will then also get a bit anxious about what people think. I say a bit anxious. I'll lie in bed, sweating, shivering and moaning and thinking, what
0: did I do this for? I suppose that's the the same, I suppose, every time you you bring a book out. I I think from my point of view, it's always great to have somebody like you who's just, you know, loves talking about books. So, you know, it's great for in terms of that. that There was a couple of things that I really loved in your book, Dear Reader, the I think somebody at one point calls you a book whisperer because of that almost yeah. <laughs> oh, that tingle. But the other bit, the bit that I actually laughed out loud at was, and again, it kind of touched on that thing you were talking about reading all night to you're so totally disorientated the bit where you were in was it the shop and the, the shop assistant's was a bit concerned when they asked you and you started explaining. And his answer was, Do you want a bag?
1: It was, yeah, it was, I can't remember what year it was, but it was. It was between Christmas and New Year, which I always think is a funny time anyway. And I've been reading, I've been reading Kate Atkinson, Life After Life, which is brilliant. But again, that novel keeps inviting you to consider the roads not taken, you know, because it keeps, the character keeps dying, the story keeps resetting. They so yeah, I've been reading that very intensively and wondering about it. And then, yeah, so he asked me, yeah, the M- the and Spencer's at Q Retail Park, and he asked me, how are you? And I said... Do you know, I'm feeling quite peculiar. I've been reading this book and da 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 da. And he just looked at me and said, Do you want a bag? <laughs> so funny. And then I went home and told my husband. And for a while after that, whenever I went off on a flight of fantasy, he'd just look at me and say, Do you want a bag?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, it's absolute laugh out loud, funny.
1: Yeah, that was funny. Sometimes I do, again, like when I'm writing and not seeing a lot of people reading or writing and if I get into that world and then go out into the world I do often find I'm a bit peculiar and like I overcommunicate with you know like the train guard or something and I can see them starting to think what's going on here but it's just because I haven't seen it's because I've been living in my interior world and I've slightly lost the plot on appropriate social behavior <laughs> I tell you what I struggle as well with in a nice way so like going to festivals literary festivals it's so nice because the whole place is full of book lovers And again, it's quite often I'll go somewhere for a few days. So I'll do an event for my own book, but then I'll interview authors for a few days and over a few days, like I'll really get to know the place and the people and I'll walk around and everyone will be smiling at me and people, you know, people I don't know will say to me like, Oh, that was brilliant earlier on or, you know, Oh, you did a great job there or whatever. And then when I leave the festival, I'll be on the train and I've just forgotten I'm no longer in that environment, in that vibe. So I'm carrying on being extremely friendly to people, but of course, Now that I'm out of the thing, they don't want me to be friendly with them. So I've sort of learned to try to transition a bit better out of those environments.
0: Because the other thing I was going to say about, dear reader, and particularly in relation to this category, a book you would recommend to anyone, one of the things which is really good at the end of each of the chapters, whatever the theme is, you choose, you you give people another five or six recommendations Now, there's two sides to that. One, it's brilliant for recommendations, but then it's just like there's almost like another ending list of (laughs) books. I've already got the year of, I think it was the year of reading dangerously and was it mortifications? You know, on the back of reading your books, I thought, you know, the idea of reading books about books. And then there's another ending supply of recommendations within your book.
1: Yeah, I hope that it's, uh, again, reassuring rather than stressful. Sometimes people do get overwhelmed, don't they, by having lots of books to read. And I always think it's a shame when they do. I mean, I don't really. Well, again, it's like I could, but then I would think I would ru- have ruined the great joy of my life. So I've just accepted that there's not enough time for me to read everything. So I'm just not, bo- I'm not worrying about it. You know, I don't, if I, you know, sometimes you do, don't you? Sometimes I will listen to some conversation between people and think, gosh, they all sound very clever. And i am um, am I some sort of a massive thicky because I haven't read this or I haven't read that. And quite helpful when you start doing radio. Like before, before I was on Radio 4, I'd listen to people and I'd think, oh, wow, they're so intelligent. They're like a different species. I'm so stupid compared to them. And then you realize that when you do Radio 4, you kind of get a chance to prepare for it. They invite you on the program, then you spend an afternoon slightly swatting up. So, and I don't think I realized that's what people did. I thought they just like walked in off the street and sounded that good. <laughs> <laughs> but then you do it and you realize it's not like that. So, no, I never want anyone to feel, you know, sort of under pressure or under stress about having to read. It's only ever about pleasure for me. But the lists in between the chapters as well, they're designed to be like in a bookshop, you get something called a dump bin, which is the little stand of between five and eight books. So that's what I wanted those lists to be, like little themed dump bin in between every chapter.
0: I always think one of the most exciting things about reading is when you've finished a book and that, especially if you don't know what you're going to read next, that anticipation of going to your bookshelves and finding whether the books yeah. give you that tingle with your fingers or just the fact that, you know, at certain points a book will just suddenly catch your eye and, I love that moment, but you just before you start a new book.
1: I really like as well the way that one thing leads one thing leads to another, not necessarily in a really sensible way. Like because it all depends on what it was you liked about something. That's what I, you know, working in a bookshop, people would say like, oh, "I've just read this. I want something else." But quite often, you had to ask them what it was they liked about it because it's, it's not always necessarily clear. Like say someone's just read I don't know the end of the affair by Graham Greene. It might be that they like. World War II or it might be that they like doomed love affairs or it might be that they like spiritual struggles and kind of depending on what it was they really liked about it that helps you though actually Brideshead Revisited does tend to be a fairly safe recommendation if they haven't read it because that is World War II doomed love affairs and spiritual struggles (laughs) but it's that but that's what I find interesting and I find it interesting tracking that in myself if I read something and really love it but then from there I might look for something similar or I might just feel I want something completely different. And I never quite know which way I'm going to jump, but I enjoy that. It's rarely, it's not unrelated. You know, there's a, that game, isn't it, where someone says a word and you have to say a word that's completely unrelated to it and it's really hard. So I think that's what's reading. Whatever I'm reading will influence what I'm reading next, but not necessarily in a straightforward way.
0: Yeah, because there's also a lovely bit in the book, almost like harking back to the, the simpler pre Google era where, you know, if you didn't know how to spell a word or what it meant, you looked at the like dictionary. Mm. If you I don't know if you wanted a book recommendation or whatever, you asked a bookseller or you asked a librarian as opposed to just opening up your phone and asking Mr. Google?
1: I know. So when I was first working in a bookshop, Google well I don't I don't actually remember if it ex- I don't think it existed, or if it did, people didn't have it, or we didn't have it, or whatever. But people in general didn't have it. So people would come in and say, uh, my friends died and I've got to read a poem at the funeral. What do you think would be a good poem? And then you'd walk them through the section and have a look and recommend stuff to them. Whereas now people just Google poems for funerals. I think there are books now called poems for funerals. They weren't, they weren't at the time. I really enjoyed all that bit of, you know, one of the reasons why working in a bookshop was so much fun for me was it felt like being on a general knowledge quiz show the whole time. And I enjoyed that and the ability to be helpful because I do like feeling helpful to people. So that in general did, it felt really nice. Of course, now I'm a long way away from it as well I have complete rose-tinted spectacles I've forgotten the fact that it's actually extremely hard physical work and quite a lot of the time the dear great British public are not particularly nice to you <laughs> I've forgotten that I only remember the nice customers now
0: well from uh, recommending books to all and sundry we're on to the fourth question and that is a book that you couldn't be paid to read again and the book that you chose was Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens
1: Yeah, so I really struggled with this question uh, because, to be honest, I could be paid to read it again, really. There's probably nothing that, outside of, I I really dislike true crime, but outside of true crime as a genre, I would struggle. I could never pick a a book by a living author for this question because it would just feel too mean. But I must say Pickwick Papers, I did struggle with it because Pickwick Papers gets quite a good write-up in Little Women, which is another one of my favourite children's books because Joe March and her sisters, uh, they make this post box and they call each other after the characters in, in Pickwick Papers. So of course I thought, because of that, I was going to love it. I just found it fairly incomprehensible. I mean, I just didn't, it just sort of like, you know, I don't, I struggle a bit with Dickens. I like Great Expectations, Tale of Two Cities, Christmas Carol, but a lot of the long, longer ones, I just get really, just get really lost. Yeah, so I wouldn't, I did find Pickwick Papers tricky and would rather not would rather not have to re-engage but of course the bookworm bit of me thinks still is, still is tempted to think oh but but maybe if I did have to reread it maybe I'd finally get it I quite often you know if I don't get on with the book I am inclined to think it might not be the book it might be me that on a different day I might enjoy it so I very rarely write something off forever I just think this isn't a good match for me today
0: I had never read, I've never read Pickwick Papers, but I bought it during the lockdown because I did a podcast with a friend of mine, a writer here in Glasgow, and I think the theme was funny books, and he chose Pickwick Papers as one mm-hmm. of his favourite funny books, and I'd read some Charles Dickens, so I've got it on my list of, of books to read. But interestingly, in, the, in your book, dear reader, you do make the point of, I think the first two or three Dickens books you said you read, you read them when you were younger as a bridge person, so you hadn't realised how you know, worthy they were.
1: I know, yeah, we do, we had this trolley that we got to choose from, and I just didn't realise that they were abridged, that they were kids' versions, so I thought I'd read them all, and then I think I've never quite recovered from the shock of how long. <laughs> Maybe I need to read them all as a, as the abridged versions that I was reading when I was seven and that I thought was so good.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, at one point I will, I'll have a go at the pickwick. Yeah, tell
1: pick me, my... tell me how you get on. Thanks. If you really love it, if you think it's the best book you've ever read in your life, then I will give it a go. That's... I'm trusting you to be honest with <laughs> me.
0: <laughs> well, but we, we go on to the last question in the categories and that's the last book you read or are currently reading in the book that you've chosen is People Like Us by Hashi Mohammed.
1: Yes, I'm currently reading this at the moment. I love it. And I'm reading it because I was at Cheltenham Literature Festival. It just got back from Cheltenham Literature Festival where and Hashi was there. So we had a couple of conversations and it's about his journey. So he is a barrister now, but was a refugee from Somalia and he writes really interestingly and brilliantly about social mobility and early on in it i thought this was funny there's a bit where he he does a, he makes a documentary for radio 4 about social mobility and then private eye do a cartoon where they put they have a sort of a smartly dressed guy standing next to you know, someone who looks like they're from the rougher end of the trench and the smartly dressed guy says, I've just listened to this documentary about social mobility on Radio Four. And the other guy says, What's radio 4? And that encouraged him to feel he had to get out, you know, get, you know, right and get out get out about it. But I just yeah, it's just really interesting. And so all sorts of things about social mobility, about class, about race, how they work. And I'm enjoying it very much. And I like him a lot. So it's very interesting to me. And of course, having, again, he examines the term social mobility and what it means and this the idea that it's, you know, is it enough to kind of like escape from, you know, that it's almost like used to be the model that one or two bright kids would be plucked out of the working classes and kind of like given a scholarship and risen to grandeur and whether or not that's a good thing or not. And as he says, you have to work the system that there is if you want to make progress. Oh, that's what he's suggesting, rather than wait for society to be completely reformed in the way that you want it to be reformed he's trying to give advice about what you do in the now so that you can make things better in the future so i find all that you know all of it's all of it's very interesting
0: obviously that's a a non-fiction book. do you do you have a preference or is it just because you obviously do a lot of rereading but do you just if a non-fiction book catches your eye you know particularly like that after the children book festival then you'll pursue that or do you prefer fiction
1: It's such a good question. i say I used to almost uniquely read fiction. I read hardly any nonfiction, but now I've really shifted. And I don't know whether a bit of that's professional because I review memoirs for the Times and I teach memoirs. So to a certain extent, I've always got my eye on memoirs. And I do enjoy, again, all the time I was a bookseller, there was less of this, but there's been a real explosion in, for want of a better term, sort of really intelligent self-help. So sort of accessible psychology for lay people, that type of thing. And I do, I really enjoy that now. So I'm thinking of books like Grief Works by Julia Samuels, or With the End in Mind by Katherine Mannix, both of which are nonfiction books about, well, Julia's is about grief and Catherine's is about death. So I like, um, I like reading that sort of thing. So yeah, certainly the, certainly the balance has shifted from when I was younger. And I definitely find as well in, in recent times, I've found it really helpful. You know, I find it really, the introduction to Grief Works by Julia Samuels, I, honestly, if I could have read that when I was 18, 17, if I could have read that just after my brother had been knocked over, I do think it would have been unbelievably helpful. But not, I mean, nothing like that really existed then. But when I did, I mean, I did read that, I read that book after I'd written The Last Act of Love. And it just, she writes about how grief is a tug of war between the pain of loss And the instinct to survive and I'd never thought about it that way before and it just seemed it just made sense of my life it made sense of these because I would have these spurts and then I would just sort of curl up again and I just thought yeah it's a tug of war between the pain of loss and the instinct of instinct to survive and I didn't feel that you know that wasn't talked about nobody ever really said anything like that to me it was all this more this idea that time will heal it will take a year people seem to think you'd feel gradually better like an inch at a time Whereas in my experience that's never been true. It's you know, if you plotted it on a graph, you wouldn't see a gradual improvement. You'd see big zigzags, big up and down zigzags. And um and it was when I read it when I read that in Julia's book that I just thought like, ah, yes. And it had a real profound, like I felt it in my body, that shift into Oh, yeah, now I understand. So yeah, so I think so I think nonfiction can be really helpful for that. But there's still the joy of fiction, which also I think does teach you things by imagining what it would be like to be someone else. So I like both and as much of it as I can. I don't watch much telly. It's not that, you know, it's not that I disapprove of telly or anything. It's just that I find it a bit, um, oh, a bit, again, overwhelming. Whereas reading seems to suit my brain a bit better, I think.
0: Because I suppose, you know, talking about those things that you read, that kind of resonates back to what you've kind of whole theme re- reading, you know, running right through, your reader, of the subheading is the comfort and joy of books. Mm. And that could be the comfort and joy in the hardest of times that, you know, a piece of writing, as you say, resonates with you and talks to you.
1: Yeah, it's the most extraordinary thing, isn't it? I still am completely and utterly amazed by the profound nature of the fact that you take this book, this thing that was invented, you know, it must be the best invention ever, possibly after the wheel. I mean, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) But there's this shape that's now existed for hundreds of years and you take it and then you read in a linear fashion for fifty thousand words or whatever and then you get to the end and you've had this complete other experience you've traveled all over the place you know mentally and physically i just still find that amazing and then that's just one book if you've got a shelf of books the fact that all of them do that for you all of them take you to such different places uh is staggering and i've never been really that interested in real world travel i'm kind of quite happy if i did have If somebody said you can have a week off, I mean, let's forget about the virus. Somebody said you can have a week off. Here's loads of money. What would you like to do? Honestly, what I'd really like to do is check into some like quite swanky, comfortable hotel with like white linen sheets and stuff where they would bring me food. (laughs) And maybe, (laughs) you know, maybe there'd be some kind of like pool or something. So I could have a bit of exercise just with loads of books and no responsibilities. And I could just read for a week. And I would rather do that. I'd rather read about going to the Antarctic than I would actually go to the Antarctic.
0: I think that will resonate with a lot of of people listening who who love books for that. Just that, even just that luxury of taking a step. It's a bit like the idea of imagining putting your phone down for a day even. Just taking a step back from the kind of hustle and bustle and noise.
1: Which I, I mean, which I do. And I plan that now. So, you know, I've had a really busy week. And what I'm going to do after I've finished my commitments for today is I'm going to turn off my computer for the weekend and i always already know what i'm going to read i'm going to read i'm going to finish my people like us by hashim mohammed and then i'm going to read ya gayazi's new novel which has just been sent and i've read the first three pages and again they are just wonderful i mean just spectacular so i'm going to do exactly that i'm going to switch off and i'm going to read that and so yeah i've got my i've got my little plan and it will the switching off's really necessary i mean i could you know read half an hour of it check my email again read half an hour of it see if anybody's saying anything on the social medias, but it won't be as satisfying as if I switch off and just allow myself to have the whole book.
0: Absolutely, that sounds, that sounds perfect. And one thing, again, towards the end of your book, you were talking about, you know, that idea is, as a reader, you're always curious when you see other people, what, what they're reading. I think I've said this in a podcast before, and people can have this idea if they want. I had this idea for a, a photo book, basically pictures of people reading books in public. You know I mean? if you go into a restaurant, if you're on public transport, maybe one or two people have an actual book. Most people are on their phone. Now, they might be reading on their phone, but just to, to celebrate reading and reading in public, I always thought, I, I just thought it would look a bit dodgy if I started to take photographs of just random people.
1: You know, I had the exact same idea a few years ago. I wanted to, well, when I still lived in London and was on the Tube, I wanted to take pictures of people reading real books and then thought, actually, if I do it sneakily, I'm sure that's, like, morally wrong. And if I ask them, it kind of ruins the candid nature of it. So I slightly gave up on the idea but I think it's a lovely thing and I love the I love the random nature of it I quite like I mean if someone's got a kindle next to me I do try and read the text and see if I can work out what it is which I often can so that does that feels like a piece of great detective work trying to work out often if you can see a character name I can work out what it is or if I can't work out what it is know that at least I could make some kind of comment on the style or the genre or whatever so I think that's that's like a fun. That's a fun game. <laughs> that's, that's how in- I get my cakes.
0: <laughs> that's, that's impressive. That's impressive. But I just love that. You know that way. Every time somebody picks up, you know, goes on the bus and they open up the bag and they bring out an actual book. There's just something. You get a wee smile. And you go, that's nice. Nah, I like that. It's good.
1: I like the little as well when somebody's reading something that you've loved and you just kind of like catch each other's eye and eyebrow raise. And but again, if you try and do that to someone and they're they're obviously not realising that's why you do it, that can be a bit embarrassing. <laughs> This is and I always like point at the book, you know, and then, it, <laughs> then I go back to thinking, like, oh, I wish I'd just not. I quite often, you know, one of the reasons I was a really good bookseller, actually, I was a really excellent barmaid. And the reason for both of those things is I'm genuinely really interested in people. I love talking to strangers. I've got no kind of barrier between um, <laughs> some people think this is a problem. I've got, I don't have to know somebody for a long time before I want to be exchanging like deepest secrets with them. So I'm just like, I love being able to immediately get on good terms with someone. And sometimes it's, that's great now for my life as a writer in terms of, you know, like a signing queue at a festival or whatever, because I'm just so happy to meet people. But when I've been deprived of that and I'm just in normal civilian life on a bus or on a train and try to do it, that's when people think I'm a bit peculiar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The other, we're almost out of time for the podcast. The only other thing I was going to say about the book, and it's that idea, again, it's, a, it's an idea that I've expressed before, of, you know, that cliche of don't judge a book by its cover, which I mm. think is completely wrong, because when you go into a bookshop, sometimes it's the book that catches your eye. Are you pleased? Because Dear Reader is, is the kind of book cover, I think, that will catch people's eye on bookshelves and in bookshops.
1: I think it's so beautiful. And I do think, I think covers do really matter. And I would find it very difficult to have a book out in the world where I didn't like, the, you know, I couldn't, I wouldn't like it if I didn't like the cover of my own book. But I think my publishers have done an amazing job. And it has this gold foil on it. Someone emailed me the other day to say they were reading it by candlelight. I thought that was quite nice. They were reading it by candlelight and that the gold was glinting in the, uh, was glinting all around them and looking like lots of little stars. And that made me feel very happy. No, it's a really
0: eye-catching They've done a beautiful
1: job, haven't they? They're going to, we've just been looking at the paperback one, uh, which isn't for, it's not, it's not for months and months and months. Um, But we're going to keep the same cover because we just all think this one is so nice. So sometimes you get a completely different cover, but we're just going to hang on to something quite similar because it's just, I mean, I'm just staring at it now. It's just gorgeous. It just is so, it just looks so relaxing and lovely. And then it's got, dark green end papers inside i do like book architecture you know i like the way books are made and if you uh, if anyone's got it let me say as well if you take off the dust jacket then it's a really gorgeous turquoise color inside and on the spine in gold it says dear reader kathy rensenbrink but there's also another little flower detail the same as the cover so again it's got hidden good stuff the more you investigate the more you find
0: I can recommend the book cover but I can also recommend the book Steer Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books which is out now published by Picador and apart from reading the book you will end up with a million and one book recommendations but Cathy, uh, we have come to the end of the podcast but I have to say I've, I've really loved talking to you about books this afternoon
1: It's been such a huge pleasure thanks for having me on
0: Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it you can get in touch via Twitter at ReadallAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAll About It Podcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.